All right, it's Mystic Dan back in the studio. Good to be back. We're talking today about hypnosis and the power of the mind. What does the hypnotic trance state teach us about the powers of the mind? You know, hypnotists can hypnotize somebody and make suggestions that then change their reality. We're going to talk about all of it today. And we, like I said, we're back in the studio. I hope if you're watching on YouTube, you notice the artwork I put up on the walls. Yeah, I'm trying to spiffy up the studio a little bit, make it a little bit nicer behind me. Um, but anyway, uh, we, I, I should note we are on multiple platforms now. We are on Spotify. That's right, Spotify. You can search the paranormal and the nature of reality. I think that's what it's under. Or my name, Daniel Nyman. We are on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts now. And if you want to read, just go to the website mysticdan.com. I post all my articles on there. As some of you probably know, usually I write up an article and then make a video where I basically go over that article. So if you want to read, go to mysticdan.com. But let's get into it. Um, I am lucky to have the book Hypnotism by G.H. Estabrooks. This is a very rare book. Um, it's out of print and used copies are a pretty penny these days. They cost a lot. But that is one of the seminal works on hypnotism and the powers of the mind. G.H. Uh, Estabrooks was a psychologist who was interested in hypnotism for military and intelligence operations. Uh, which is very interesting. We're not going to talk much about that, but we will cover the phenomenon available uh, that are, have been elicited via hypnotism. We're going to get into it. It's important to note at the outset, though, that not everybody is a good hypnotic subject. Esther Brooks reports that only about one in five adults is highly hypnotizable, meaning they can be put into a deep trance. And even for those people, you know, it varies. The phenomenon you can elicit from them varies. Like later on, we're going to talk about a community of sensation, whereby if the hypnotist puts something in his mouth, like some sugar, then the subject will taste what he tastes and will taste sugar in their mouth and react accordingly. Uh, but again, not all subjects are going to be capable of that, and um, it, it varies. But Let's go into first, what can be done via hypnotism? Well, first of all, there's personality. You can change somebody's personality for the better or worse. And we like to think that our personality has been uh, shaped by years of experience and possibly genetics. But experiments in hypnotism teach us that the personality is a creation of the mind and therefore malleable to the effects of hypnotic suggestion. So Estabrooks describes the case in which 10 undergraduate students were interviewed by a company scout to find potential recruits for the company. Now, this initial interview would be followed two weeks later when company men came and re-interviewed them so after interviewing each student, the scout said that his company would probably hire about half of them. Uh, and he listed the candidates in order of preference. At the bottom of the list, the candidate least likely to be hired, according to the scout, there was a Mr. Smith, who he said lacked confidence and aggressiveness, two qualities you need in the business world. Estabrooks took this as an opportunity to try an experiment involving hypnotic manipulation of Smith's personality. So for the next two weeks, he, Smith was hypnotized and given suggestions to the effect that he would develop complete confidence in his own ability, that he would not hesitate to exercise his initiative, and finally would work hard and ignore time clocks. So he's trying to change his personality to have confidence to exercise his initiative, be more aggressive in what he, what he wants, and to work hard, and to be a good fit for the company. Well, two weeks after the scout had come and listed this guy at the very bottom of possibilities, men from the company showed up and re-interviewed each 10 applicants again. They agreed with the scout that they would probably hire half of them, 
But of course, they would need to check applicants at other colleges first. However, one applicant could not wait for confirmation. He was top priority, and they made him a job offer immediately. That man was Mr. Smith. He was simply too good to pass up and surely would receive many more offers by other companies, so they had to hire him on the spot. So the scout who had came two weeks earlier, obviously he was puzzled. Like, what's going on here? So he asked for another interview with, with Smith and finally concluded that he or Smith must have had an off day on their first interview, for he was clearly a perfect fit for the job. Of course, in reality, he was clearly unfit for the job until hypnotic suggestions changed his personality to suit the job. He took the job and Estabrooks reports that he did very well at the company. Um, the historian Brian Inglis wrote about another case of dramatic personality change in his book, Trance, A Natural History of Altered States of Mind. I've actually got that one with me too. This is another, I think, out of print book, Trance, A Natural History of Altered States of Mind. Very good book on the subject of trance. So anyway... Um, a patient at the Salpetrier Hospital in 1884 named Gian S. was a criminal, violent, and chronic thief. Dr. August Voisin used hypnosis on her, and at first he just used it to suggest that she perform simple chores like cleaning up her room. When that was successful, he went further and made suggestions that she give up her criminal ways. Two years later, she was a nurse at another hospital, and her behavior was irreproachable. She was not involved in any crime whatsoever. She had totally changed her behavior because of the suggestions given by the doctor. Indeed, to take this point to the next level, Estabrooks claims that multiple personality disorder can be produced by a kind of hypnotism, that of emotional shock, and although requiring much time and effort, that multiple personality can actually be cultivated under hypnosis. You could create multiple personality disorder in someone using hypnotic suggestion. So we can drastically change one's personality. What else is possible? Well, it seems like under hypnosis, physiological changes of the body are possible. So what do we mean by that? Well, let's go to some examples. So, for instance, Inglis reports that if the subject is told he lost his sense of smell, like if you tell somebody under hypnosis you've lost your sense of smell, and then asked to whiff a bottle of ammonia, asked to sniff it, the subject will take a deep whiff but have no reaction and no tears will form in his eyes. As we know, normally uh, ammonia is a very strong smell and you will react to that. You will want to get away from that substance and it will make your eyes water. But under hypnosis, if you give the right suggestion, they will show no physiological reaction to the ammonia at all, even if they breathe in a big whiff. And then there is the case of Professor of Physiology, Rudolf Heidenhan, who arranged for his brother to be put into trance. And while under trance, his brother was given a bottle of ink and told that it was beer. But he drank the ink with relish. Now, what I'm curious about is how far you could take an experiment like the ink experiment. Because my intuition tells me, and based on the other experiments I've read, is that the ink actually acted upon his body as if it were actually beer. In other words, his belief created the reality of his experience, both mental in that he tasted beer, but also in his body's physiological reaction to the substance. So it would be interesting, I think, although unethical, to push such an experiment to its limits and basically prove my case. What I'm thinking here is of giving someone a substance that is toxic in large doses, but telling them in trance that it's something like a delicious cup of tea. If my interpretation is correct, 
they would be able to drink copious amounts of the tea without ill effect. In fact, they should be energized by it. Of course, if I'm not right or anything goes wrong, like the subject not fully taking the suggestion or picking up on doubts in the hypnotist's mind or commands, it could end in disaster. So like I said, that would be unethical. So a better experiment along those same lines would be to use alcohol and tell the subject that it's water. I'm thinking vodka here. Vodka's pretty strong. Not many people can drink, you know, that much without obviously getting drunk or passing out. So tell him it's water and give him the vodka. And, you know, maybe you might have to make a suggestion first that he's really thirsty. So he really chugs the stuff. I mean, we want him to drink like a gallon of the stuff if possible. And if he can drink it, without showing signs of drunkenness or passing out or vomiting as you would if you drank too much, then we can conclude that the vodka is actually acting upon his body as if it were actually water. And incidentally, Estabrooks reports that such an experiment has actually been successfully done. I think he said with beer, not, not vodka, but it would be nice to replicate that kind of experiment. And you could even take this further. You could have actual medical doctors examine them, take blood samples, and really see what's going on in their body when they act under these suggestions. I think it would be fascinating to try. And by the way, if any hypnotists are watching, any hypnotists listening out there, uh, contact me through my website or dannyman at gmail.com, D A N N. E-I-M-A-N at gmail.com. We can arrange for a podcast. I'd love to do a podcast with somebody. Um, so, yes, we also know from other experiments that the body does react based upon the belief imparted to them and not by the objective reality of what's going on. So the psychologist Joseph Delbuff used a red-hot iron bar to brand a woman on both of her arms. Before he did this, he suggested that she would feel pain only in her left arm. Afterwards, he bandaged both arms. Then the following day, he removed the bandages to discover that only the left arm was blistered. The right arm showed the outline of the iron bar, but was not blistered by the heat as it should have been. So again, we have another case where one of the arms, which he told her she wouldn't feel any pain in, was not affected by the red hot iron, the, the you know, very, very hot iron, whereas the other arm was and did blister. And indeed, immunity to pain and burning have been reported effects of trance. For instance, hot coals have been held in the entranced person's hands, lit matches held under their fingers, or cigarettes put out on their skin without any pain nor effects of burning, again, if given the right suggestions. And surgery has even been performed. We're talking amputations of limbs under hypnotic suggestion that they won't feel pain, and they don't. So the power of the mind over the body is absolutely remarkable. Um, for instance, a suggestion to an alcoholic that anytime he takes a drink of alcohol, it will taste vile and cause him to be sick to his stomach will result in him vomiting every time he tries to drink after that. All kinds of physical ailments have been cured through hypnotic suggestion as well. And the Dr. Richard Willard was successful in using hypnotism and imagery techniques to enlarge the breasts of women. Uh, that's interesting. 85% of the women in his experiment had a significant enlargement of their breasts and 46% had to buy a larger bra or brassiere. So that is absolutely amazing that you could affect the size of a body part and I'm sure some of you guys out there are taking notes about now but anyway that is just absolutely amazing and shows you the power of the mind to shape your not only your mental life but your physical body so in essence the mind and its beliefs shape 
not only your mental world of thoughts, but the physical reality of the body. And if you want to go really far out on the borderlands, you may even suggest that the mind is capable of shaping the objective, and we'll get to subjective hallucinations in a minute, but the objective external world outside of us. And where I'm coming from is physical mediums have been known to go into trance and hold seances where objects levitate in the air. Um, other objects are apported or materialized in the room. And all sorts of other interesting, what they call physical phenomena of physical mediumship occur. Now, the predominant theory among practitioners is that spirits working through the medium are responsible but it may in fact be due to a psychokinetic ability of the mind. And if you're interested in that, check out the podcast um, on PK, Evidence for Survival with Stephen Browday. Um, we talked a lot about those topics there. All right, next up, let's talk about hallucinations induced by hypnosis. Now, we can talk about there are positive and negative hallucinations. So you can make somebody think or experience an object in the room that is not really there, or you can give them a negative hallucination where they don't perceive an object or person that is there in the room. And it's important to note too that these hallucinations, they don't have to be confined to the trance state. Any hallucination you can induce in the trance state can be produced via post-hypnotic suggestion. And this is simply telling the person that they will see something after awakening from trance. And you can even specify the time the hallucination is to occur. It could be an hour or a week later. So you can give somebody a post-hypnotic suggestion that, you know, a week later they're going to see something and they will. So let's get into some examples. Um, for instance, you could tell somebody that when they awaken from trance and see a certain object, like the ace of spades, they will see a friendly dog come in through the door. So upon awakening from hypnosis and shown the ace of spades, they will indeed see a dog come in through the door and proceed to pat the, the phantom dog as if it were really there. Indeed, they experience it as really being there and the illusion can affect all sensory modalities. On the negative side, things get a little more interesting, and that's because it seems as if to render an object or person invisible, the subject has to be able to distinguish the object from other objects. In other words, they must first perceive the object that is supposed to be invisible in order to exclude it from perceptual awareness. So Albert Mole showed this curious fact in an ingenious experiment. He says, quote, I took a match and marked its end with a spot of ink. I then suggested that the match was invisible. I took 29 other matches and put the whole 30 on the table in such a manner that X, the subject, could see the ink spot. To my question, X replied that there were only 29 matches on the table. I then, while X's eyes were turned away, moved the marked the marked match so that X could not see the spot. He looked at the matches and said there were 30 of them. Thus, the marked match was only invisible as long as X could distinguish it from the others. So in essence, your brain must filter out the object that is supposed to be invisible. However, if your brain cannot distinguish the object among other objects in your field of view, then it cannot render it invisible to your conscious awareness. So Alan Gauld has remarked uh, very astutely on his observations of people undergoing negative hallucinations and notes that their reactions are not always the same. He says, quote, some have appeared most realistically frightened and bewildered on seeing an object carried through the air by an invisible person. Others have very noticeably kept their eyes averted from the invisible person, looking anywhere but at him or near him. They certainly in some sense knew where he was. So in effect, you know, 
on some level, you do perceive the person or object which is supposed to be invisible. On you know the information, the light waves from their body are going in, impinging upon your eyes, but the brain based on the belief imposed by the hypnotist that the object is invisible, the brain is processing that out of your conscious awareness so that you don't actually see it. But on some level, your brain knows it's there. Um, And suffice it to say, on the positive hallucination side, the subject will act in every way as if he is really seeing, hearing, and touching what it is you suggested would be there. If you tell him when he opens his eyes, there will be a friendly cat on the table, then he will see the cat, he'll pet it, he'll play with it, etc. However, if you tell him a mean dog is there, he will appear frightened and attempt to retreat. Uh, Tell him that the President of the United States is there, and they will act accordingly. And (laughs) that's kind of funny, because Estabrooks actually carried out such an experiment So he gave two friends of his who were good hypnotic subjects the post-hypnotic suggestion that the prime minister would show up to a party where they were all invited at a specific time. So later, while they were attending the party, at the appointed time, one of the friends went to the door and welcomed in the prime minister. Now the friends were obviously honored by his presence, They served him drinks, and the two friends questioned him on all sorts of political issues. The prime minister must have had some good responses because Estabrook says they were occasionally thrown into bouts of laughter at his witty remarks. Estabrooks describes how uncanny it is to watch someone having a conversation with an empty chair. So you can just imagine his two friends sitting in in two chairs with one in the middle and them talking to this empty chair as if they can really see and hear a person speaking back to them. It's just really uncanny. I mean, they acted in every way as if the hallucination were absolutely and completely real. That's how powerful these can be. And what this shows us is that what we see out there in reality is really just a projection of the mind, which we hope corresponds to an objective, self-existing reality outside of ourselves. And normally, of course, we can ascertain this based on the agreement of our perceptions with everybody else. But what hypnosis shows us is that this perception of external reality can change in a heartbeat if a powerful enough belief is instilled in the deeper reaches of the mind. On the fringes of this thought, um, this thought line, one might even ask whether or not this reality that we all experience is nothing but a collective hallucination of the mind. And then the question becomes who or what programmed this belief into all living minds. Maybe at some deeper level, we all share a mind together. Some deep level of mind is connected and we... Um, have some kind of programming to visualize this world. It's it's an interesting thing to ponder. And we'll get into the scope of the mind a little bit later. Now, let's see where I was going here. Yeah, so I was going to say the the positive and negative hallucinations induced by hypnotic suggestion, they raise some interesting questions. Here are some questions I would like to see answered. Maybe some hypnotists already know the answer and contact me, please. So I wonder what would happen if you made someone believe there was a dog on a table and then you ran your hand through the space where the dog was being perceived by by the subject. Would the subject see your hand passing through the seemingly solid matter of the dog? Or would they experience your hand pushing the dog off the table and the dog actually moving onto the ground? So that's one question. Um, Another is, would you be able to remove the hallucination without putting him back in trance and telling him there is no dog? 
So what if everybody in the room insists that there's no dog there? Would he then realize it wasn't a it was a hallucination himself? Um, I'm wondering what would happen there. And on the negative hallucination end, what if you told a subject that a certain person in the room was invisible and then put a clock behind their back? Would they be able to see through the body of the person and tell you the time on the clock behind their back? It's intriguing to think about for sure. And what if you had the invisible person stand in front of the only doorway, the only exit out of the room, and then told the subject to leave the room? Would they just walk right up and bump into the person and then be shocked to be bumping into thin air? What they experience as thin air because they can't see the person? Uh, so get back to me if, if those questions have been solved. I want to see the answers. Now, let's talk about the power of the post-hypnotic suggestion. This, this really brings up the concept of free will and makes us wonder, do, how much free will do we actually have? So a post-hypnotic suggestion seems to be overwhelmingly strong. For instance, you can tell the subject under hypnosis that when you tap three times on the table with your pencil the subject will have an irresistible desire to take off his shoe. Then he is awakened to the normal state of mind and the hypnotist taps three times with his pencil on the table. The subject then has a strong desire to remove his shoe. He may consciously fight that desire, unsure of why he feels this compulsion and maybe realizing that it's a strange thing to do. However, he will inevitably do it. And uh, Estabrook says, you know, he might, you know, fight the desire. He might walk back and forth and run his hands through his hair and, you know, but eventually he capitulates and takes off the shoe because the, the compulsion to do so is so strong. Indeed, so strong can be these post-hypnotic suggestions be that even if the person is aware that what he wants to do is the result of a post-hypnotic suggestion, he cannot resist, or at least not for any lengthy period of time. So Estabrooks describes a case in which the subject was hypnotized and told that when the hypnotist lighted his cigarette, the subject would take the ace of spades from the pack of cards on the table and hand it to the hypnotist. After awakening the subject, the hypnotist lit up a cigarette and the subject reached over for the pack of cards. However, this subject was familiar with hypnosis. He had done some reading about hypnosis, and he rightly guessed that his inclination to give the hypnotist the ace of spades was a hypnotic suggestion. The hypnotist informed him that he was correct. That was a post-hypnotic suggestion he had received while in trance. The subject said he wouldn't do it. He's not going to do it and accepted a bet from the hypnotist for 50 cents that he, in fact, would do it. And the subject became restless and wondered about the room, obviously struggling with an innate desire. But about an hour and a half uh, later uh, of frustrating resistance, he did get his 50 cents from the hypnotist. Um, he did not give him the ace of spades. But afterwards, when he was trying to go to work and get things done, he said he found he was unable to work and he was haunted by the ace of spades. Like he could not get this compulsion out of his mind to give the hypnotist this card. And it prevented him from, you know, focusing on anything else. So he finally went back to the office after hours got in with the help of the janitor, took the ace of spades out of the deck of cards, went to the hypnotist's home, and gave him the ace of spades plus a dollar, you know, for the trouble. Um, because at this point, he had lost the bet. And a similar case reported by Esther Books is that of a subject who in deep trance was told to drink a glass of whiskey. But the subject not only wasn't a drinker, he was a prohibitionist and disapproved of drinking. So he refused the command while under trance. He didn't do it. 
However, the next day, he came back to the hypnotist because all day long, he had felt an urge to visit every saloon that he passed and have a glass of whiskey. This seemed crazy to him, obviously, uh, but fortunately, the hypnotist wasted no time in rehypnotizing him and removing the suggestion. And finally, another funny example Estabrooks gives is the post-hypnotic suggestion that upon awakening, uh, the subject was to go over and insist on sitting in someone's chair. Um, this guy's name was Brown, and the subject and Brown were basically strangers. They had met maybe that day, but they were virtual strangers. But anyway, the subject was told to insist on sitting in Brown's chair. So when the subject awakened, Estabrook says he paused for a moment before walking over to Brown and politely asking if he could sit in his chair. But when Brown said, no, or yes, I mind, you cannot sit in my chair, he says the subject, without a word, took Brown by the, sh by the shoulders and threw him out of the chair. Not only that, but he then sat down muttering savagely that if Brown so much as opened his mouth, he'd send him through the window as well. Well, I mean, Esther Brooks did say to insist upon sitting in Brown's chair and give the guy some credit. At least he tried to give Brown a chance to do things the easy way. But one thing's for sure, he was going to sit in that fucking chair no matter what. So Estabrook said he learned to take things easy after that. So if these subconscious commands given by the hypnotist are that powerful to the point where resistance is futile, it makes you wonder how much of our lives and actions are not really under our conscious control, but under the control of deep-seated beliefs and ideas that have been imprinted on our minds. How much of our actions are driven by compulsions to act from the subconscious mind? I think quite a bit. And I was listening to a podcast, a Lex Fridman podcast recently with Sam Harris. And Sam Harris was trying to say that we don't have free will. And one of the things he brought up, which was very interesting to me, is to think about your thoughts. You don't know what you're going to think next, right? Thoughts just pop up in your mind. Um, are you choosing to think those things? Most of the time, not. I mean, why, if you're sitting working at something, does a thought just suddenly pop up that, oh, I need to go to the store and buy bread, or, oh, it's my anniversary next weekend? You're not choosing to think that. It just comes to you. Where are these thoughts coming from if they're not consciously chosen? Um, any minute, you could get the urge to do something. Are you consciously choosing these ideas and urges, or are they just coming to you? And indeed, a lot of great writers and artists, you know, paint or write without much thinking. The ideas just flow through their minds from God knows where. Well, if you talk to F.W.H. Myers, um, he might say the subliminal self, the, um, the deeper self, as we're talking about in hypnosis. Okay, what, uh, where, where are we going? Where are we going? Let's see. Oh, yeah, another interesting aspect of these post-hypnotic suggestions is the excuses subjects will give per for performing, I'm sorry, for performing seemingly illogical or odd actions. So, Esther Brooks gives the example of a subject who was told that after awakening, when the hypnotist, who was Esther Brooks, sat at the piano, the subject was to go over to the bookshelf and select the third book from the left-hand side of the second row from the top and turn to page 127 and read the first paragraph. Now, obviously, that's an odd thing to do. Um, so although the subject did not remember that suggestion that had been told to him under hypnosis, after awakening, that is, he did not remember what had been told to him, he duly picked up the correct book once Estabrook sat at the piano and started reading um, the, the textbook, which was a textbook on biology. 
And when questioned by Estabrooks as to why he was reading to him, you know, Estabrooks was like, why are you reading me? Why are you reading to me? You know, as it was obviously odd in this situation, the subject replied that he had had an argument the day before with a professor about the action of chromosomes in reduction division and thought Estabrooks could help him out. Upon investigation, though, Estabrook says, it was clear that this was quite untrue. He had had no argument the day before with his professor about the action of chromosomes. This was just an excuse to justify his actions. Indeed, the subject acting upon post-hypnotic suggestions will always conjure up a rational explanation for their actions, even if positively untrue. As another example, example, the psychiatrist Jewel Eisenbud said that he had been successful in getting patients to perform a post-hypnotic suggestion to call him at late hours of the night. Now, consciously, uh, the subjects knew they shouldn't be disturbing him at those hours. However, they would make the call to his home and produce, quote, obviously trumped up pretexts for making their calls. And one wonders in those cases if the subject actually believes the reasons they give or if they know they are lying but give the excuse anyway to just not look stupid. But anyway, that's interesting that, you know, if you're given a post-hypnotic suggestion that's an odd action, you know, you you will do it. And not only will you do it, you will be able to give a reason as to why you're doing it. You will make up some reason and my intuition says that probably you believe that reason. So it's very, it's very interesting how the mind works in that way. And that sort of rationalization of one's actions doesn't just work in the case of actions, but also false beliefs or false memories imparted by the hypnotist. So Estabrooks describes a subject who was only 25 at the time being told under hypnosis that he served in World War II as Captain G.N. Smith. And it must be said that Estabrook's book was written in 1957. So, you know, this was a long time ago. But anyway, the subject was told he was served in World War II as Captain G.N. Smith. And after awakening, the subject of war was brought up, and the subject obviously volunteered the information given above, that he was in the war as Captain G.N. Smith, but when told that he would have had to have been older to to serve as a captain in the war, he was too young to have been a captain, he maintained that he was older and continued to defend his belief or imposed memory, uh, Estabrook says, with a beautiful series of lies, even when pointed out how ridiculous it was. He still defended and truly believed that he was a captain in the, in the in the war. And speaking of implanting false beliefs, Estabrooks really liked to mind fuck people. He really liked to fuck with people using hypnosis. He tells a story of having put a friend of his, let's call him Steve, into a trance, and he gave Steve two post-hypnotic suggestions. One was that upon awakening from trance, he would think Brown, who they would meet up with later, was a delusional mental patient who had been released for the day. The other was that Steve would remember having been in another city that afternoon playing bridge with his friend Black. So he then took Steve, still in trance, but acting normally as he had been coached to do. And Estabrooks points this out in the book that you can have somebody under the hypnotic state um, and you can make them act as if they normally would act and nobody can tell the difference if they're in a trance or awake. So anyway, he was still in trance. So didn't the post-hypnotic suggestions had not taken effect yet. And they went to meet Brown. The three of them spent the afternoon together in Oxford, and at a certain point, Estabrooks told Steve to wake up. So Steve snapped out of trance, and after regaining his composure and bearings, 
he carried on a conversation about sports with Estabrooks and Brown. Estabrooks then asked where Steve had been that afternoon. And, of course, Steve replied that he had been playing bridge with his friend Black in London. Of course, Brown rightly shot back that he had been with them that afternoon drinking tea in Oxford. But you can see where this is going. Steve now thinks Brown is a delusional mental patient and really gives him a, a ragging. He turns to Estabrooks and says, Is this one of your friends from Amesbury? <laughs> and he gives a little laugh like he knows why Brown is saying that you know, he had been with them all afternoon because he's a delusional mental patient. And later they even drove to uh, Black's house and Estabrooks had also hypnotized Black earlier on and he was in on the plot. Uh, and so he, he also agreed that Steve had been there playing bridge with him. And so Brown was totally confused. And, uh, I'm not going to give all the details of the event, but yeah, Estabrooks took Brown through a total mindfuck that day. Now, another fascinating thing um, is the loss of time. So Estabrooks talks about how you can train a hypnotic subject to go back into trance on cue, like when I touch my right earlobe you will instantly be in the trance state, go into trance. Or when I tap my pencil on the desk three times, you will go into trance. Not only that, but through suggestion, you can remove all knowledge of ever having been hypnotized and make it impossible for anyone else to hypnotize that person. So Esther Brooks gives a fascinating example of sitting down with a subject and talking about a boxing match. Then he taps three times with his pencil on the table and instantly the subject goes into a, a hypnotic sleep. And then the and then Esther Brooks, you know, the, or the hypnotist just plays around with the hypnotic trance state, let's say for half an hour. And then they wake the, he wakes the subject up. Now, what's interesting is that when the hypnotist wakes him up, he will immediately start talking about the boxing match right where he left off as if, you know, he, he was just continuing his conversation before as if it was a continuous event with nothing in between. And he has no memory of being in trance. He has, in fact, lost time. If asked whether he knows about hypnotism, he will look surprised and say he knows nothing of the subject. And if asked whether he has ever been hypnotized, he will say that he hasn't. But if the operator again taps three times with his pencil, the subject will immediately go into trance again. So it's just fascinating um, that aspect of it that you can, you know, basically implant false beliefs or remove memory of something, make somebody have no conscious memory of the trance state. Um, there are so many things that can be done. And one question that might be asked is, will a person do anything under the trance state? Can you make somebody do anything you want? Well, the answer is kind of yes and no. So, Estabrooks basically, I mean, there is a... Something mo you might hear modern hypnotists say that, oh, uh, they won't do anything in trance that they wouldn't do in their normal conscious state. But Estabrooks calls that sheer nonsense. For he has seen members of the community make complete fools of themselves on stage during public demonstrations of hypnotism. On at least three occasions that he is aware of, he says the person even tried to beat up the hypnotist afterwards for making them act in such embarrassing ways. He goes on to cite instances where deeply uh, private information was shared under hypnosis, like secret love affairs or fraternity secrets. And there's also the case of professor of physiology, Rudolf Heidenhain, who arranged for his brother to be put into trance. And while in trance, the suggestion was given 
to him to cut off his beard, which, quote, he had assiduously cultivated for a year. So this beard was very important to him. He had been growing it for a year and, and really liked his beard. But under the hypnotic suggestion to cut it off, he did with a pair of scissors. And suffice it to say, when he woke up, he was not happy. However, it's not always the case where people will do things they don't want to under hypnosis. Uh, according to the psychiatrist Augusta Forel, sometimes subjects unexpectedly wake up if asked to behave in a way they do not approve of. Uh, but if the hypnotist is ingenious enough in his suggestions, he may be able to elicit the action he wants. So the psychologist Hans Eysenck reported a case in which the hypnotist suggested to a woman that she take her clothes off. She immediately came out of trance and slapped him in the face. However, Eysenck suggested that if he had been craftier in his suggestions, then he could have gotten the desired result. He should have gone about it by first suggesting and getting her to hallucinate that he was a woman friend of the girl. Then he could have said it was getting late and as they had to get up early, they had better take their clothes off and go to bed. So it may just be, um, you know, for to get a, a hypnotic subject to do certain things, you might have to, you know, set set the stage, so to speak, and, you know, make some other suggestions before you do that. Uh, but anyway, in getting a subject to undertake a certain action or perform a certain feat, there's also the curious aspect of the hypnotist's own belief in the matter. If a hypnotist himself believes that the phenomenon can be produced, then the subject will comply. But if he doesn't believe, then the subject will not comply. So Estabrooks, citing Citus's psychology of suggestion, puts it a little more succinctly. He says, quote, the subject will resist a suggestion if he has the least idea that the operator does not fully expect him to comply. If the hypnotist makes his suggestions in a firm voice, which does not express the slightest doubt as to their acceptance, the order will be obeyed. End quote. He points out, for instance, that some hypnotists have been successful in attempts to have their subjects carry out criminal or dangerous acts, whereas other hypnotists have been unsuccessful. As far as Estabrooks is concerned, this has to do with the operator attitude regarding the matter. If the, if the hypnotist doesn't fully believe the subject will do it, then the subject realizes this and behaves accordingly. So the subject can pick up on any hints of doubt in the subject's mind. And literally, maybe picking up on the doubts in their very mind. We're going to get into that later. Um, but I was going to say doubt in their voice. Any hesitation or doubt in their voice. But also it could be a mental thing. We'll get into that in just a minute. So it's interesting, and it brings to mind what's called the experimenter effect in parapsychological studies. Most famous example maybe is Marilyn Schlitch and uh, Richard Wiseman, who did an experiment where they tested subjects, and they tested whether a people have a sense that they are being stared at. So this is um, a phenomenon that sometimes people you know, feel like somebody's watching them or looking at them, and then they turn around and see if somebody's there. So they wanted to test this. Can people somehow sense that they are being stared at? So they conducted their experiments in the same location using the same method and equipment and used participants from the same population, which were mostly undergraduate psychology students. A subject would uh, sit in a room with a camera situated in front of them, which transmitted a live video feed to a TV monitor in another room. After being taken to the room by the experimenter and hooked up with electrodes to measure electrodermal activity of the skin, at randomly determined times, the experimenter, either Slitch or Wiseman, 
would stare at them via the TV monitor in the other room. Electrodermal activity of the skin was measured throughout the trial to determine if their body somehow sensed that they were being stared at. Heightened electrodermal activity when the experimenter was staring at them via the video feed versus when they were not staring would indicate an effect. It was found that subjects who were stared at by slits, uh, who believes in psychic phenomena, showed a statistically significant effect for heightened electrodermal activity during periods of staring versus non-staring. However, subjects stared at by Richard Wiseman, who does not believe in psychic phenomenon, he's a renowned skeptic, subjects stared at by him did not show any statistical difference between staring and non-staring periods. So somehow, belief of the experimenter affected whether or not the phenomenon was present, whether or not the subject actually showed a response to the staring. So these things are quite interesting. And in hypnotism, I think the belief of the hypnotist does have a strong effect on if the subject will comply. Now, let's talk about psychic phenomena because, I mean, there are, there are so many things we could talk about. I mean, we've only skimmed the surface, my friends. Uh, for instance, there's the incredible recall of memory under hypnosis. Um, things you don't consciously remember, you can remember in detail under hypnosis. There's age regression. Esther Brooks talks about being able to um, take people back to a different age where you will actually act, feel, speak, and have the intelligence of a person of that age, of you at that age. Uh, and that's done by giving them an intelligence test, which he says is really hard to fake, you know, knowing the right answers for a specific age. But anyway... Let's skip over some stuff, yeah, and let's go to psychic phenomenon, yeah, because we liked it. So, psychic phenomenon. First, there's the finding that subjects will sometimes respond to commands that are not spoken but thought. There are reports in the literature on hypnotism of hypnotists who give commands mentally which are obeyed by the subject. So, William Scoresby reported that when he mentally commanded his subject not to get out of her chair, she would be surprised that she could not leave it. So, he didn't tell her, you can't get out of your chair. He mentally spoke that to her. And a related phenomenon is the ability of a hypnotist to put a subject into hypnotic trance at a distance. So, Gauld, who wrote, a huge book on hypnotism, a history of hypnotism. He reports that Pierre Janet and Dr. Gibbert of Le Havre ran a series of experiments involving 25 trials, of which 18 were successful. The subject was a patient of Gibbert's named Leone, or MB, and a success was recorded if within a few minutes of the hypnotist willing her to do so, she fell into a state of hypnotic sleep. The hypnotist distance from her ranged from a quarter of a mile to a mile away. So the hypnotist was very far away. There was definitely no way of sensory you know, um, information getting to her, normal sensory information. And in fact, she was in a totally different building than the hypnotist. Um, and upon successfully being willed into hypnotic sleep, she would sometimes even obey a subsequent willed command to come to the hypnotist's house. Now, the details of the experiment are not clearly spelled out in the works that I have consulted on the matter. However, I assume that one of them, you know, either Janet or Dr. Gibbert, one of them mentally concentrated on an image of her going to sleep at, at Gibbert's house, the location reported by English where the hypnotist was at when he did the experiment. So the hypnotist would be at Gibbert's house focusing on a mental image of 
of the subject going to sleep or going into hypnotic sleep, while the other, or maybe a collaborator, watched her in another building uh, up to a mile away and noted the time that she fell into trance. And for this to be methodologically sound, whoever was keeping an eye on her to note the time she went into trance uh, must not have had any idea when the hypnotist would begin his willing or try to get her to go into trance. But Gold does say that additional successful experiments were conducted with the help of Paul Jeanette, uh, Jules Jeanette, F.W.H. Myers, and a bunch of other people who Gold says were gentlemen, quote, well aware of the need to make trials at irregular intervals and to beware of the possibility that MB, the subject, might pick up cues from their own behavior. So, you know, with those people in mind, the, the experiments were probably pretty methodologically sound that the subject was actually responding to a mental command and not any cues from the people involved. So, you know, we need to go back to that idea that a subject can pick up on doubt in a hypnotist's voice. Well, maybe they can actually pick up on doubt in their mind as well. So a hypnotist needs to be convinced themselves that their subject will perform the action. Okay, besides the finding, the astounding finding that some subjects can respond to mental unspoken commands, there is also the curious phenomenon of community of sensation. We touched on this earlier. Through some suggestion or another, the subject can be made to believe that they will sense whatever the hypnotist senses. And the famed naturalist, um, co-founder of the theory of evolution, incidentally, Alfred Russell Wallace, He tried such an experiment. He was interested in spiritualism and hypnotism. So he describes how he made a chain of several persons with himself at one end and the subject at the other. And Wallace describes how, quote, when in perfect silence I was pinched or pricked, he, the subject, at the other end of the line of people, would immediately put his hand to the corresponding part of his own body and complain of being pinched or pricked too. If I put a lump of sugar or salt in my mouth, he immediately went through the action of sucking and soon showed by gestures and words of the most expressive nature what it was I was tasting. I have never to this day been satisfied with any of the explanations given of this fact by our physiologists, for they resolve themselves into this that the boy neither felt nor tasted anything, but acquired a knowledge of what I was feeling and tasting by a preternatural acuteness of hearing. That he had any such uh, preternatural acuteness was, however, contrary to all my experience, and the experiment was tried so as to expressly prevent his gaining any knowledge of what I felt or touched by means of the ordinary senses." Of course, the inherent flaw in his experiment that he was in the same room as the subject will definitely favor the skeptic's point of view that some heightened sense in the trance state picked up on what he was doing at the other end of the line of people. So it would be far better for the hypnotist to completely conceal himself from the sensory awareness of the subject. And this kind of thing has been done. For instance, the explorer William Scoresby did the tasting on the other side of a partition. And a little better, but still, that's a little better, but still not perfect. But then there's the case reported by Inglis of Reverend Andrew Gilmore. He had a servant girl um, who was a good hypnotic subject. And upon establishing community of of sensation between himself and the girl, he could go into another room and the girl could tell him what he was tasting in the other room or where he was pinching himself. And incidentally, the reverend also found this girl to be adept at clairvoyance. He would ask friends to record their activities throughout a certain day 
And then he had his servant girl on the same day go into trance, and he asked her while in trance to, quote, look in on these friends and tell him what they were doing. And then he would write a letter with what his servant girl said they were doing and see if that was correct. And oftentimes, the friends would report back that, yes, that is accurate. I was doing that. Now, how methodologically sound that experiment is, probably not uh, very methodologically sound. Uh, what would have been better is if he had his friends first write him and tell him what he was doing on a specific day, but not open their envelope. And then, well, I guess the letter would be sent later on, so he wouldn't have to worry about that part. But anyway, you get what I'm saying. So he hypnotizes his servant girl, says, can you go and look in on this friend and tell me what he's doing? And the friend, you know, he doesn't have to write the friend and tell her this is what she saw, but the friend is supposed to write him and tell him about his activities, what time he did everything during the day. So he gets the letter a few days later after recording the servant girl's um, you know, observations and then matches the two, see if they match up. That would have been a little better. But anyway, if traveling clairvoyance, as that's called, isn't enough to pop a blood vessel, how about a little precognition, right? Just for fun, because we're just for kicks, because we're having fun. So precognition also in the annals of hypnotic research. And this is from Gauld's A History of Hypnotism. Quote, in 1849, Becht and an older medical colleague, Dr. W.H.M., undertook the case of a young lady, Miss M., who was seriously ill with pulmonary tuberculosis. Beck began to magnetize her and she became somnambulic or hypnotic. On 10th of April, 1850, the patient being in the somnambulic state suddenly produced a detailed account of her own forthcoming deathbed and its surroundings, which were quite different from her present surroundings. She dated her death to the 17th of January, 1851. She also stated that Dr. M would die in precisely a year. Both deaths occurred as predicted, her own in the circumstances which she had foreseen. According to Zorab, both deaths are recorded in the town's register of deaths, end quote. Now, if such tales are to be believed, then the mind must exist throughout space and time. And what we experience as our waking consciousness is but a localized speck of this, sorry, of this extended mind. You know, if the mind has access to information, you know, of the hypnotist in another room or of what somebody else is doing, you know, a thousand miles away, or if you can have precognitive um, visions which come true, then this means the mind is extended in space and time. We are just experiencing this little localized speck of the mind localized in space and time. Now, one problem is that most of these reports of psychic phenomenon date back to the early days of mesmerism and later hypnotism. Um, so it seems like these kinds of experiments kind of fell out of favor over time. But it is my hope that hypnotists today will reinvestigate these claims with renewed vigor and better met methodology. So we need to conduct this research to really... Um, understand the true nature and power of the mind. And if any hypnotists are interested, I would love to do a podcast or critique any methodological uh, research you might be uh, looking into. But what is quite evident from the collected research is that the mind is incredibly powerful at shaping our experience of reality. In essence, if the mind at a deep level, such as in trance, thinks it's real, then it is. 
This doesn't just extend to hallucinations and false beliefs, but also impinges on physical reality itself, the physiology of the body. And furthermore, there is some compelling evidence, which I only mentioned in passing, but there's compelling evidence to suppose that the mind may even affect physical matter beyond the body. Uh, but we're going to wrap it up right here. And let me know what you think in the, in the comments. And if you know of any of these questions, if they've been answered, which I brought up, let me know um, if some hypnotists have done these experiments and what you think about the power of the mind. So good night, everybody. Check me out on, uh, like I said, Spotify. Just type in uh, the paranormal in the nature of reality or Daniel Nyman. Check out my website, mysticdan.com, or go on YouTube, Mystic Dan, as well. Have a good night, everybody.